hello and welcome to another episode of Ancestry with Lucy Luce and Lily Love. Welcome to part two of Food Sovereignty. Last week, we told you guys what food sovereignty was, but I felt like after re-listening to that episode that that was very confusing and you might not have understood what we were talking about. It's very lofty. It's very like big words and stuff. So I kind of squished the words together and made it more of like a layman's definition. Food sovereignty is helping keep food local and healthy. It's about equality, fairness, and sustainability. So in that, it allows the people to decide and develop a food system based on social justice issues, as well as sustainable farming practices and respect for the ecosystem and its limits. So Lily has a little bit more to say on that too. There are also seven pillars of food sovereignty. Number one is focusing on food for the people. Number two is building knowledge and skills, how to grow your own food, and more about that. Number three is to work with nature so we're not destroying the earth as we grow our food. Number four is finding value for the food providers and not exploiting them. Five is localized food systems to be able to have access to fresher foods and not have to resort to mass production. Number six puts controls over the local food sources so that they don't have to be out of business due to big corporations. And number seven, which is most important, food is sacred. Everybody has to eat. Right. It, and it should be a right. So in this episode, we are going to discuss how the human race can achieve food sovereignty, as well as reconnecting to our own traditional foods and at the end of this episode we're both going to do a small dive into different traditional diets and the benefits of just going back to the way that our ancestors were living and eating before things got out of control so how do we achieve food sovereignty, Lily? I think the very first thing is to individually evaluate our own food choices. And the best way to do that is if you don't have access to fresh food or have time, in a sense, the best thing we can do to start is to learn how to read food labels. It's not just about like how many calories you're having or portion size. It's about the ingredients. Like if your ingredients is longer than the nutrition label itself, do not eat it. If there is an ingredient in there that you can't even pronounce, put it back. The least ingredients in the foods you buy, the better. I would say education. And I mean, that's pretty much what you're saying as well. But in order to even get to a point where somebody's understanding what they're reading on the label, there's some people who don't even know what the difference between organic and conventional uh, 
produce. One of the studies that I looked at while we were researching this, the article was called Quebec Farmers Push Food Sovereignty. They had asked a bunch of people in Quebec a bunch of questions to help the researchers figure out how to bring food sovereignty to this town. And a lot of the people didn't even understand what organic was. They thought that if they bought it from the market, it must be organic. To get to a point like from not even understanding what organic versus conventional food is to a point where you're able to decipher what a food label is, it's kind of a far journey for a lot of people because... Mm -hmm especially like lower income people and people that live out of the margin of what would you call that food deserts where the people don't have access to any kind of garden or natural foods they might be just getting their foods from a gas station where it's all prepackaged things or maybe if they do have some kind of grocery store there's no organic options There's no local options. It's just stuff that's been stuck in a truck and transported from other countries for weeks. If you're in that kind of situation, what can you do to feed yourself better in a sense? So that's kind of where food sovereignty comes into play is that educating yourself so that you can maybe ask the government in your area to bring more grocery stores or make friends with the farmers in your area or nearby find out if there are community gardens in your area so you have your own plot and be able to grow your own food i think it was in that same quebec article that they had asked the participants if their children were students at a school that had a a garden And then I remember there's two schools, at least two schools here in my area that I know that they have the kids plant foods. It's like part of the curriculum. And then one of them has like a farmer's market during growing season. So the kids get to grow the plants and then they also are selling it to the community. I would say like the first thing to reconnecting to our natural food would be focusing on eating locally and another important thing too is buying in bulk it's actually a lot cheaper than buying individual foods and in order to get even more discounts it's best to talk to whoever's working in these local farms to ask to buy in bulk to get to know them a little bit and they'll more than likely give you a discount on the food as well because they have to get rid of it as fast as possible to keep it fresh yeah that's a good tip depending on the size of your family you might need to learn some ways to preserve the foods like pickling or canning Um, I know like my grandparents have a garden that they keep in the summer and my grandma will can and freeze green beans and squash and make jellies out of the the fruits that they have so that way when you have a bulk amount of vegetables it is easy to 
let them go to waste. Fresh foods stay really at the healthiest within like the first 24 hours of being picked. So after it stayed in the fridge for a couple of days, it's lost a lot of its nutrients. Freezing it right after or like, you know, within a few days of it being picked is going to keep the nutrients. Yeah. And it is better to learn how to jar and can. And although it is time consuming, you'll be much happy that you did it when the winter season comes and you don't know what to eat. (laughs) Right. It is a good way also, like you said, when the winter comes, then you have foods that are fresh and local, maybe not fresh, but they're not the packaged foods that have been processed and have ingredients that are most likely carcinogens or not made for human consumption, really. Our bodies weren't designed to uh, eat most of the food that's, that's being sold to people these days. So ways that you can eat locally is going to local farms or farmers markets. There's um, farm stands, but then there also a lot of farms that have pick your own foods. You can also have your own garden or become part of a community garden in your area. A lot of grocery stores are selling local produce these days. Like even my local Kroger, I've noticed in the summers, they have Arkansas tomatoes, they have Arkansas strawberries. Trader Joe's always puts on their signs like locally picked. Mm -hmm. And you can even go as far as, and it's probably difficult for people to, but you can go up to them and ask them like, where are these farms? So you can potentially go to them personally Mm -hmm. and hopefully get them yourselves well I went through a phase I make my own yogurt and so for a while I was going I had found a local farm and where I would go and get fresh milk like from the cow oh that's awesome (laughs) yeah it was pretty cool because then like I got to meet the lady who milks the cows she took me out in her little like buggy thing and like I got to go and meet the cows. Like, she just took me on like a little private tour on her farm. That is so awesome. It was a yeah. whole experience. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I knew the cow's name. I was just going to ask that. But do you remember her name? <laughs> I don't remember her name. It's usually like Betsy. <laughs> yeah, it probably was. <laughs> we'll say that. Her name was okay. Betsy. So if you don't eat locally already or any kind of natural or whole foods, you might be wondering why, why is it important to eat locally? Some of the things that make it beneficial for eating locally is you get more nutrients from your local ground. It's fresher. It has more nutrients because as I said earlier, you you lose freshness like the moment that it's picked. So it's not being transported a long distance to get to you. It's coming from that farm that's probably, you know, like at least 30 minutes from your house or less Mm -hmm. for the most part. Usually like most of my local places are like just a little out of town. So they're pretty close. Yeah, and you can make a whole day of it. (laughs) Yeah, 
understanding and, where your food comes from is very important. Yeah. And sometimes like my farmer's market, there's one that meets every Saturday and it's just like a five minute drive from my house. And that's all the farmers coming to one place. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I get an option. It's also not exposed to chemicals, gases, or waxes that are used to preserve food for the long-distance tra- transport. It also supports local farmers and not large corporations, like I mentioned. And you can, like we mentioned before, talk to the growers, ask them questions about the quality, the quantity, how much you're able to get in one, you know, one trip. Mm -hmm. and when it's organic too there's more care put into it also because you're like usually able to talk to the farmers you can actually ask them what they use because a lot of farms still need some kind of weed maintenance or pest control so it's good to know like what they're doing for that because some people may not be organic just because they're local doesn't mean that they're organic but this gives you the opportunity if you're buying from the local farmer you can ask them what are they using and then you will know whether or not you want to eat their food exactly because um, there are a lot of practices like I went to a farm in Michigan they make my favorite cider scrumpies so I got to meet scrumpy's grandson wow yeah he's the, the one cider who, brand yeah scrumpy was the guy who made the cider but initially it was just like for their family and friends and neighbors and they would just have parties and it was just for for them personal use but then his grandson the one who started the company he used his grandpa's recipe and started making it for college parties when he was in college. And then everybody loved it. So then he eventually took his grandfather's recipe and made scrumpies. They use red solo cups on the trees to deter the, the pests. Mm. Because I guess it, it looks like apples. I don't know exactly. Because it's a completely organic cider mm-hmm. company. So that was one of the questions that I wanted to know. Like, how do you have pest control and still stay organic? They had that. And then there was like some other sprays and things that were all made with organic compounds. So there were no chemicals used it was like natural things that they were using mostly trying to not put anything on the actual apple they were one of my favorites too yeah that's a good cider it's just apples like Mm -hmm. fermented yeah and it's so good yeah if you can find it we highly recommend it yeah (laughs) send us some (laughs) okay back on track (laughs) (laughs) what I said earlier I said nutrients from local ground but what I was trying to say is that the earth is going to be better quality more nutrient dense right yeah because um the farms that are 
like mass producing the foods that are the conventional stuff like because they're all about a profit and stuff they're not focusing on the nutrients in the dirt but a local farmer is going to be more likely to put that care into making sure the dirt is is good high quality yes yes and that brings it also more sustainable farming practices which also kind of go back to the pesticide free and better for our bodies and not just better for their pockets mm. i like that <laughs> my resource for all of this information that we've been talking about is an article by Liz Amisson, A-M-I-S-S-O-N. The article was called, Is Eating Locally Grown Food Healthier for You? And she has a lot of letters behind her name. She is MSN, RDN, CDE, and a registered dietitian. So she sounds like she's gone to a lot of school to know what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. Go Liz. <laughs> Other ways to achieve food sovereignty is planting your own foods. We kind of went over some of the things when we were talking about how you would eat locally, like having a community or neighborhood garden or seeing if your children have a garden in the school. Mm -hmm. It's possible. I mean, you just ask. Ask and you shall receive. Yeah. Planting your own food can be as small as just growing spices in your windowsills or having like a full outdoor garden or even a greenhouse. Well, if for any reason we're not able to grow gardens for too much shade, some people don't have the time, some people don't have the space. Again, next thing to do is to just learn how to shop better. Mm-hmm. learn how to read a food label and we can include resources that break down how to go about that how to read the food labels and look for ingredients how to read them but i think the most important thing to look out for whenever you're trying to read the food labels is to see if it contains wheat corn and soy mm-hmm. because those three are mass produced the corporations do it for Number one, agriculture to feed the livestock so people can get their meat. And number two, they're making so much way to grow these certain foods that they're cutting down more of the Amazon every day just to grow these fields of corn, wheat, and soy. A lot of people, especially that I know, I know Lucy is, uh, I know I can react to it, can be allergic to these kinds of ingredients of the corn, the wheat, and the soy. Because it's so mass produced, they tend to put it in almost every processed foods. So if you are able to stay away from those, I highly recommend it. And the best way to do that is if you look at the bottom of the ingredients list in bold, it says may contain corn, wheat, and soy. And if it says that, try your best to put it back on the shelf and look for a different alternative. Yeah, I'm going to add that uh, corn is not always listed Corn is one of those, because I have a corn allergy. That's the hardest one for me. I had to, like, just learn all the names, like modified cornstarch, corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup. I can't even think of all of them. You can probably Google 
what ingredients contain corn and there's probably a mile long list because they make corn into everything there is a documentary you've probably seen it about corn is it about those two guys who tried to grow yeah like he gets a subsidy from the the government and then they like try to eat the corn and it's horrible yeah it's not even made for eating because it has to be so strong for the pesticides to not kill it and then like there it's just been bred to be this unedible thing because they use it to make all of these additives and sweeteners the government subsidizes it so it's They're able to grow it very cheaply. That's why it's mass produced because they're getting money from the government and then they can just grow these huge fields of it and then sell it to people who make make it into the products. I think because of all of that, that's why we have so many people nowadays allergic to these foods because our bodies aren't made to to digest and process these foods in the way that they're being grown Mm -hmm. because they've been genetically modified. I know genetically modified kind of sounds scary, but like they're actually like organic foods can be genetically modified because really genetically modified means that they've just taken the genes or the plant and combined them to make a different kind of plant so that's like something that our ancestors were doing there it's called graphing like you can take a slice of a tree and then put it onto another tree and then they'll grow together so organic foods can be genetically modified that way that's why you don't have foods with seeds because they've modified it to the point where it doesn't have seeds so I don't know I'm like on the fence about like genetically modified good or bad but I think that the the grains and the way that it's become such a huge business that is not a good thing and that is what's causing a lot of health problems in our country right now Mm -hmm. because it's in everything for me with my allergy to corn and to wheat like I talked about in the last episode I was eating a lot of grains because I was eating that to replace the meat that I was not eating when I switched to vegetarian diet. So because I was uneducated about wheat and grains and how mass produced they are and genetically modified and non-organic, all of these things, I was just like over consuming things. Also with soy, because I was I'm allergic to milk as well. So I was eating so much soy. I would have the worst periods like cramps where I would have to sometimes miss school when I was a kid for like three days my insides were murdering me 
It's like an overload of estrogen. Yeah, that's what a doctor told me. I was trying to figure out why my periods were so bad. And yeah, I told the doctor I drink soy milk. I was eating so much soy foods. The doctor told me it's like you're just dousing yourself in estrogen. That's why I don't eat soy now. And like my period cramps are like night and day. When I was talking about last episode about doing elimination diet, that was just like, I've had to just do a lot of experiments on my own body to like mm-hmm. figure out what's yeah. good and when I can eat foods and stuff like that. Since we're on the subject of food, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be ideal. Well, before I dive into decolonizing diets, I want to talk about how colonized diets have made not only us sick, but the first people who are in this nation, the Native American nation, sick. Mm -hmm. And we definitely want to dive into the history of that. And I'll include all the resources to this too. This article is explained in the Santa Fe, New Mexico uh, website. And it talks about the history of just how our food has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And what it's done to the bodies of those who are not used to processing this kind of food. Indigenous people are disproportionately experiencing a lower quality of life. They have more chronic illness. They face more pro- poverty and have more chronic disease. And they face more violence and definitely food insecurity. And this is still happening today. Mm-hmm. When colonizers first came, they forced the native people, evicted them from their ancestral land, and they were no longer had access to their traditional plants, medicines, ecosystems. They struggled to keep their cultural traditions alive because it, I mean, it took away everything, including their native diet, which they were very advanced with that they were able to sustain their lives as well as not cause harm to the planet while doing so mm-hmm. now like they were even like helping the ecosystem exactly with their practices they knew balance and they knew how to respect the earth and you know if they're taking from it they would always give back to it somehow now they rely on government assistance programs that is rich in sugars processed foods like white flour lard dairy products and canned meat Mm -hmm. and it's they have to eat these for their survival now they don't have access to their native land they don't have access to their ancestral traditions anymore the reason for that being is because of reservations they've been put on are not the best quality they don't have access to their fresh water anymore and the also is because It's due to loss of elders who knew all the ancient traditions and also forced assimilations with the Native American boarding schools. And of course, the dominance of modern food technologies. In a 2018 study, it showed that 48% of indigenous people were now obese. They suffered from high blood pressure. They suffered from high cholesterol. They suffered from diabetes and those led to kidney failure. So they are definitely at risk for, you know, a short lifespan because of the food that they have to eat now. 
Mm-hmm. It's really sad how, you know, these ancient people before any settlers were here knew of the land, knew how to do all of this, how to farm, how to hunt, how to harvest, and being taken away from all of that. It's like, what can you do but rely on those who took it away from you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the government is just giving them the most unhealthy options. Like they're not even giving them options mm-hmm. that are going to help them to be better. Yeah. A lot of them live in the food deserts. Mm-hmm. They don't have access to fresh foods, vegetables, medicine, and they turn to um, alcoholism, addiction. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, suicide has been huge in the Native communities now because of this. But on a positive note, there is a resource I found called the Pueblo Food Experience, and it's a cookbook. And I found an article about it that explains more. And it's basically an artist, she's a sculptor named Roxanne, Switzer and she created this it's a study pretty much and there are about 14 volunteers from age 6 to 60 and they did this study for about three months where before the study they got their blood drawn to check their sugar levels cholesterol triglycerides and liver functions and they basically were told to only have foods that were available to their ancestors you know before any native was in contact with Spanish in 1540. It was free of dairy products. It was free of refined sugars. It was free of carbohydrates and other highly processed foods. And this had a positive effect on the volunteers. The group had an average loss of like 30 to 40 pounds, significant decrease in their triglycerides, cholesterol, and blood sugar levels. Switzel herself did the study with them. She always had high cholesterol and she assumed it was genetics. Mm-hmm. She tried everything to try to get rid of it. And she just assumed, you know, that's just how it is in my family. But when she did this study, along with the other volunteers, her cholesterol level went from 245 to 172. Wow. And a normal cholesterol level is 200. It's really a huge improvement. Yeah. Her son even joined the study and he lost 50 pounds. Wow. So it definitely not only improved their, you know, blood levels, cholesterol, triglycerides, and liver function, but it also improved their mental health too. They had less Mm. depression. They had more energy. They had more mental clarity. They didn't have a lot of pain, no swelling anymore. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a food diet. It was like a sense of belonging again. It was something mm-hmm. that you couldn't even put into words, but you can feel it. Mm-hmm. You can feel it because it was a connection to something very old within themselves. Yeah. And they even described it as if they went home in a deep, deep sense. Until mm-hmm. this day, they still continue eating that way. A lot of it stems from how they used to eat. A lot of vegetables rich in nutrients and mostly it is derived from what they call the three sisters. And that's basically corn, organic corn, beans, 
and squash. Those are like the staples. She mentions that everyone is indigenous to some place and it takes about 20 generations to go back to where your ancestrals or how your ancestrals used to eat, how they ate, where they got their food. And a great way to start is finding where your roots come from, finding how far back those 20 generations are and seeing how they ate because it's definitely the best thing to fit your body and it's better than any other food we have today to just go back to ancestral ways of eating, traditional ways of eating. I love everything you just said. I (laughs) want to add something, but I don't even know what I could add. (laughs) I feel like you said it so beautifully. I just did a DNA test. I've seen a few things where people are talking about eating for your DNA and you can take DNA tests to, to find a diet that's right for you. I feel like that would help some people but I think for a lot of people just connecting to who you know your ancestors were and maybe just try changing your diet to eat more like them because really when you look at any indigenous food systems they're not eating all the grains that we are like you said they had they were eating corn but that corn that most indigenous people were eating is not the corn that we're eating today. No, it was um, all kinds of colors. Right. There were so many different kinds of corn back then. Yeah, it's completely different, like structure and makeup and digested differently. I did find an article that was interesting. Um, It was from the early 2000s. The article is from the Los Angeles Times. Hey, that's from where you are. (laughs) Um, By Hillary E. McGregor. And the article is called, Are the Clues to Diet Success in Your Genes? With Nutrigenomics. Nutrigenomics. That (laughs) sounds like a word they made up. (laughs) So in her article, she talks about um, like that some people can have some things like insulin sensitivity um, where they might need to eat less carbs or a B vitamin gene could cause an active fit person to have high cholesterol. Um, And then sometimes those kind of issues can be a mystery until a DNA test is done with the dietitian and then they'll be able to see that this is the issue. I mean, if you have it, insulin sensitivity and you're eating a ton of carbs but you're just eating the same amount as everybody else in your family but you're the only one gaining weight sometimes a dna test might help and then also working with a dietitian who knows what they're doing every body is different but we get traits passed down from our ancestors so looking at what they were eating can help you determine what you should be eating. Mm. For me, my ancestors are Nordic and Scandinavian. And something that's interesting when I was looking at this is that I realized that pretty much how they were eating is 
how I'm eating now, like now that I've switched my diet, like I'm pretty much eating an, a Nordic diet without even realizing that that's what I was doing. That's exciting. Yeah. In 2004, the Nordic Kitchen Manifesto was created. <laughs> Have you even heard of this? <laughs> so it was conceived and formulated by like a group of Nordic uh, restaurateurs and people that were working to preserve the Nordic food culture. It's basic points are that the food needs to be pure, that they eat seasonally, that it's ethical, that it's healthy, sustainable, and it's quality food. Hmm. Um, I also looked up ancient Viking diet, which is pretty close to what the Nordic diet is as well. It's dairy products, milk, cheese, curds, and whey. Grains, so these would be older, very older grains like wheat, rye, barley, and oats. Fruits like strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, crab apples, and apples. And like all of these, like even the dairy products, they would be making all of the cheeses themselves because they didn't have a supermarket in Viking days. Mm -hmm. um, they would do nuts like hazelnuts and possibly walnuts would be imported like with the vikings um bringing them back vegetables like peas beans onions cabbage leeks turnips so a lot of cold weather things fish like eels squid seals and whales that's crazy <laughs> um and then meat like Cows, sheep, goats, pigs, horses, chickens, ducks, and seabirds. Oh, They're wow. Eating everything. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, I mean, they were in a very cold climate, and you have to survive somehow. Yeah. So the staples of the Nordic diet are the, like, oily fish, like salmon, mackerel, and herring, the whole grains vegetables mostly root vegetables and then the other cruciferous um, vegetables like cabbage cauliflower and broccoli and lots of berries and orchard fruit um, and mushrooms and onions they did a lot of fermenting or they do a lot of fermenting um, like kefir and yogurt and the Nordic people still these to this day do a lot of foraging so they go out and just like go on an afternoon mushroom uh, uh, picking foraging I don't know what uh, it sounds like a lot of protein omega-3 six mm -hmm. and nines and probiotics which is probably the best things for you yeah especially in a cold weather climate where yeah, like, made it you work. have to <laughs> keep your body going constantly what would you say is a food that you're like one specific food you're trying to go back to traditionally? Um, I've been eating a lot more um, like fish, I guess. I've been trying to eat more fish in general because switching back to an omnivore diet, I am 
it's really easy to get stuck in like just eating like beef or chicken. So trying to make a focus of switching to more like fish, it's got, like it said, more omega-3s and um, six and nine and fatty acids and Mm -hmm. (laughs) stuff like that. So it's a healthier option if you're eating meat. There's uh, something called luska fish. I think that's what how you pronounce it, where they put it in rye and then it sits out and ferments for months. And I've read that it has the texture of like soggy cardboard or something, but it's also gelatinous. <laughs> and you don't open it in the house because it will make your whole house stink it sounds horrible I don't (laughs) want to try it okay I was gonna say you're not gonna try that are you (laughs) but that's good to know (laughs) yeah but that's a traditional yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah I know that my family who who still practice like Swedish holidays and things like they'll put a, a thing of Luska fish on the table but it's usually they're like who's brave enough to try it. <laughs> yeah yeah I think it is kind of like a more of a dare than an actual like <laughs> we're putting this on our plate and eating it mm-hmm. everything I've read about it everyone like it's kind of like why is it still around (laughs) yeah maybe some people do still like it who knows Mm -hmm. exactly maybe what about you are you connecting to any of your traditional foods you know what's funny when I went plant-based I thought I had to give up all my favorite traditional foods like tamales pozole enchiladas Mm -hmm. and flautas but on my food journey, I was able to discover how to make those traditional foods completely plant-based and still have the authentic flavor and the coziness to all of them. So I've been able to master because luckily Mexican cuisine has a lot of chilies and spices and herbs and a lot of garlic and onions. So I didn't need too much salt because the flavoring was all in there. Mm-hmm. And now that I can have more salt, I can make my traditional foods too, where everybody can enjoy it, not just me, because I couldn't have no salt for so long. I'm so happy that I was able, it took me a while to master the traditional recipes, but I've got a lot of them down. I make them every holiday now, especially for Christmas. I'm always making pozole and tamales. And instead of uh, pork, which is what we usually use. I use either jackfruit or I just was taught a secret when I went to Disney World and the chef was Latina and came out to meet me because I was like asking so many questions about the food and she's like, let me talk to her. And she came out with uh, two bags filled with vegan, gluten-free treats. And then she shared me the secret of a really good meat alternative that I now use in my tamales. It's hibiscus flowers. And I basically make the tea until there's no more red coming out. 
you, you'll have a lot of hibiscus tea when you mm-hmm. make it, but you can never go wrong with it. It's so good for you. And then once the color is completely strained out, the it's very tart flower, the tartness comes out and you're able to cook it in the red chili sauce. It looks like pulled pork. It looks like beef almost mm. because it's such a dark flower and it's really delicious. So I'm so happy to have met her and be taught a true secret from an authentic cook because that's like the food I grew up with mm-hmm. but one traditional food that I want to learn more how to make and I've only had it like a few times is called flor de calabaza squash blossoms they can be eaten raw they can be stuffed like chile rellenos with cheese oh, I've seen recipes for those mm-hmm. you can fry them you can stuff them you can um Put them in your pozole, you can put them in pasta, saute them, empanadas, casseroles. But one of my favorite ways is the way the Aztecs did it, and it's making them with quesadillas. Mm. It's pretty darn good. It's about 4,000 years old, and it's rich in calcium, iron, vitamin C, and vitamin A. It usually grows around the rainy season, but it can grow from like summertime to like early fall and it's from central mexico oh that's really cool Mm -hmm. you've never had it though Mm -mm. no i've just seen i think i've i've saved some recipes on pinterest but yeah i guess i should um because that's one of the plants that my grandparents plant in the summer is squash so Mm -hmm. they would have squash blossoms yeah it's for a flower it has so much flavor no wonder you can it's very versatile but another way is fried is really good you like dip it in a batter put it on the skillet it's really delicious Mm. yeah i'll have to try that next summer when i have some flowers Uh, flower of the squash well all of this talk about food is making me hungry me too (laughs) i think i'm gonna go make some food I'll be right there with you. Well, thank you for joining us for our part two episode of Food Sovereignty. We hope you enjoyed it, learned something, and also got a little hungry listening. Yeah. And please rate, subscribe. If you guys could give us a thumbs up, some stars, and just show some love. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And if you want to let us know what traditional foods you are eating or reconnecting to we'd love to hear about it we've changed our email address we have a new shorter easier to remember email address lily take it away you can now email us at ancestrypod at gmail.com so a-n-c-e-s-t-o-r-y and then pod p-o-d at At (laughs) gmail.com yeah We'd love to hear from you. And And we'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye.